Good morning, church. How are you today? Nice, nice work. My name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff, and uh, so good morning to you if you're a regular around here, part of the family, or if you're a guest. Uh, we're glad that you're here, even if you're just visiting, and we hope that over time uh, this will become a place that doesn't feel like a place you're visiting, but over time feels like a place that is home where you have the opportunity to worship God with brothers and sisters and family. So we are, uh, we're jumping in this week into a brand new study. We'll be studying Second Thessalonians for the next six weeks, and uh, hopefully on your way in today, they gave you a copy of these, uh, these Thessalonians journals. Now, in these journals, there's both First and Second Thessalonians, much like with the Habakkuk journals where you had Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. We were only studying Habakkuk at the time. Here, we're only studying Second Thessalonians. But keep these because we'll circle back around, and at some point, we'll hit First Thessalonians. Uh, in fact, you know, there, there may be some of you who are like, why are we studying Second Thessalonians before we study First Thessalonians? It feels, I mean, actually, David, one of our ushers, said to me, like, 1 Thessalonians comes first. Why are we putting 2 Thessalonians first? I'm going to talk a little bit about why we're studying it, but we want to make sure that everybody has one of those so that you have the ability to record uh, what God may be saying to you, both in the midst of our worship services, but even in your own study. As you continue to study, it would be a great idea for you. I know you, you didn't come here this morning looking for homework, but it would be a great idea for you to, uh, to, to read 1 Thessalonians in the fact that the books were written very close together, and they do emphasize some, of, some very similar themes. So before we dive in, to the, uh, to the opening here of, of 2 Thessalonians, let me give you a little bit of background, a little bit of information about the book. You can read about the establishment of the church at Thessalonica. That's the English way we pronounce it. Uh, that, that city is still there today. Uh, it's called Thessaloniki. It's in northern Greece. You can visit it. It's a center of culture and has been for thousands of years. Um, this particular city, uh, there was a church established there that you can read about in Acts chapter 17. So a little bit more uh, homework for you if you want. But in the story of the, uh, of the church evolving and growing as these missionary journeys happen, in the midst of Paul and Silas' second missionary journey, uh, they established this church at Thessalonica, and that is who this letter is addressed to. Both first and second are addressed to the, to the, the assembly of God's people uh, in Thessalonica. Now, um, you should note that this is, if you read Acts 17, you'll note that they established the church and were immediately chased out of town. So they didn't have much time there. They didn't have a lot of time to establish this sort of burgeoning church. And so the letters are written, in essence, to supply some shepherding, to supply a little bit of encouragement, to supply a little bit of reminder of what it means to be the people of God, and also to challenge them in particular ways. So there's encouragement here, there's challenge, there's reminder. It's Paul trying to do some shepherding from a distance. The letters, uh, 2 Thessalonians is written from Corinth, which is in southern Greece, and uh, these the, the, the whole thing happened around AD 50. The church was established in AD 50. These letters were likely written in late AD 50 or in AD 51. So all this stuff is happening within a matter of months, not years and years and years. First Thessalonians to Second Thessalonians is likely just a couple of months. And even the establishment of the church to the writing of First Thessalonians is even then only just a couple of months. It's not a great span of time, but Paul is writing to them and recognizing places they need to be encouraged, places they need to be reminded, places as they need to be challenged. And in fact, in 1 Thessalonians, he prays some very specific things for them, which we will see him commend them for in 2 Thessalonians. So just for the sake of you kind of getting some of this flow, in the middle of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verse 9, Paul prays for them, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. 
as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see, your, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He writes to the church at Thessalonica and says, we recognize that there are some things that are deficient in your faith, some things that are lacking, and we're praying for you that God would supply those things, that your faith would grow, and, and our prayer would be that we'd be able to be there face to face and help to supply some of what's lacking. He goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians 3.11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your heart blameless and in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's prayed these things for them, and then as he begins 2 Thessalonians, we see it in our text this morning as we're studying verses 1 through 5, he affirms, hey, these things I've been praying for, that your faith would be amply supplied, that your love would increase, that you would endure in the midst of trials. I'm seeing that those things are actually occurring. So we see that in some ways 2 Thessalonians is a response to what he perceives as answered prayer, as growth in the church, but also we will see over the course of this six-week study that there are several key things that Paul is wanting to address, obstacles that he sees they need to overcome, and they go chapter by chapter. So just as a quick overview, in chapter one of 2 Thessalonians, not only will he encourage them, but he will challenge them to bear up under persecution. If you read the account in Acts chapter 17, you will see that that early church there in Thessalonica was oppressed and persecuted both by the Jews in the region and by, by the Gentiles in the region. So they were sort of unilaterally oppressed. And he encourages them in chapter one to bear up underneath the persecution and suffering they're dealing with. In chapter two, if there was a big overarching theme, he speaks to them to overcome some false teaching that's been introduced to their community. Some things that have been introduced sort of in the, uh, in the name of Paul that did not come from Paul and are not true. So he, he calls them to overcome persecution. He calls on them in chapter two to overcome false teaching. And he calls on them in chapter three to overcome idleness for a variety of reasons, including that some of them had started to believe this false teaching. They had become idle. They had become lazy. They had become disconnected from the purpose for which the church was established and ordained by God. And so in these three chapters, which make up 2 Thessalonians, he's going to address each of those issues. If you were to ask me, why did you choose uh, to jump straight to 2 Thessalonians instead of teaching 1 Thessalonians first? Number one, I don't think we have to see 1 Thessalonians to understand these issues. And number two, I wanted us to see, in the midst of our ongoing study, the continuation of some themes we saw in Habakkuk. In Habakkuk, we saw that, that Habakkuk had, had this expectation, this confident expectation in who God is. And as a result, he was transformed over the course of those three chapters. As we move into 2 Thessalonians, we will see Paul remind this church again and again that even in the face of persecution, even in the face of false teaching, even in the face of disillusionment or idleness on the part of your people, there is the opportunity for you to continue to radiate peace, to radiate hope, to continue to be an encouragement to the people that are around you. Uh, Specifically, we see, if, if there's sort of a theme verse for me in 2 Thessalonians, I find it at the end of the chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Because, he's saying, Jesus gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, you can rest assured, you can radiate peace, you can find confidence in the midst of the persecution and the false teaching and the idleness, right? I love the way in which he's encouraging them to overcome. And so that's why we're jumping straight into 2 Thessalonians. As we do this then, let's look at the greeting. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. And I'll say just as a matter of course that we tend to kind of skip over greetings. You know what I'm talking about? They feel sort of, uh, they feel just like, like you want to get to the meat of what he's actually saying. And so you might be tempted to jump over these greetings. But there's always great stuff in the greeting that's worth slowing down to pay attention to. And in fact, the entirety of our study this morning will root there. He starts by saying, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. By the way, Silvanus is just another pronunciation of the word Silas. That's the same guy, right? So when you read in Acts 17 about Paul and Silas establishing this church, that's a continued partnership that is encouraging that church, right? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. He begins his letter with encouragement and affirmation. It's not unlike, I mean, some of you maybe get these letters in the mail from the gas company. You get these letters from the gas company. I get these letters about once a month, and they write me, and they go, hey, we just want to thank you for being in the top 2% of those who conserve gas in their homes. You guys get those letters? No, none of you get those letters, because they don't mail those kind of letters, right? All of us, we all get the letter that says, you are using 150% more gas than anybody in your neighborhood, right? How many of you have gotten those letters? Yeah, we all get those, right? It's a trick, by the way. I'm unearthing a scam. Uh, I've sat, my wife and I have sat and thought about, like, are we using more gas than anybody else? And we've determined that we're not. It's just a trick to get you to be more conservational. Conservational? Conservationist? Doesn't matter. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't conserve gas, but I'm saying I like the fact here that he doesn't come in immediately with shaming them. He doesn't come in immediately rebuking them. He doesn't come in immediately punishing them. Are there things that the church at Thessalonica needs to work on? Absolutely. Are there things that every assembly of the people of God need to work on? Absolutely. I like the fact that he begins here by affirming the ways in which he sees God working among them. So don't miss here that he starts by thanking God. He says, I thank God for what I see in you. I thank God, and he goes one step further to say, I boast about you in the churches. Now, if you've been around Christianity for any period of time, The idea of boasting is not one that we value as Christians, right? In fact, boasting is a a little bit of like a, like it maybe makes a little signal go off in your head because we don't, we don't want to be boastful. As followers of Jesus, we, we prize humility. We, we don't want to be prideful. We don't want to be arrogant. We don't want to be puffed up. In fact, in Habakkuk, which we studied together, God himself says the person whose soul is crooked is the one who's swollen with himself. So boasting is not a thing that we tend to value. But there is a particular context in which boasting makes sense, and he demonstrates it really well here in the greeting. He starts by saying what? We thank God, and not just that we thank God for you, but that we ought to thank God for you. Look at what he says in verse three. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Not only does Paul see gratitude towards God, articulating thanks to God as something he ought to do, an obligation, a responsibility, a duty of a follower of Christ, that to express thanks and gratitude is something he ought to do. Not only is it something he ought to do, he says as is right. He sees it as a moral thing. 
There is a moral value on returning to God and expressing gratitude for the way in which you see him working in the world around you, right? I'm immediately reminded of the story in Luke where Jesus heals the 10 lepers. You know that story? It might be familiar to some of you. He's on the path and he heals these 10 lepers who were outcast from their community. He heals them and he tells them, go into the city and show yourself to the religious leadership there so that you can be let back into the community. You can be let back into your cities and into your regular lives. So those 10 men go away. And then at some point it says, one of them comes back. One of them comes back and falls on his, on his knees before Jesus and thanks him. And Jesus, in a, in a moment of humor, I think, because Jesus knew how many people he healed, Jesus looks and he, he says to his disciples, did I not heal 10? I th- I'm pretty sure, I mean, I, I'm not that great at math, but I'm pretty sure I healed 10 guys, right? Could only one, Jesus says, could only one be found to come back and give thanks to God? The implication in the mouth of Jesus is when God moves among you, you should come back. You ought to come back and show gratitude as is right. Paul says, I show gratitude to God because I'm duty-bound to do so. I'm obliged to do so. I ought to thank him because it's the right thing to do. And with that as, as sort of the beginning point, then he goes on to say in verse four, I boast about you in the churches. I tell other people about what I see happening. Now listen, there's, there's an important distinction here, and it's actually a distinction we take very serious in our church. There is a kind of a dance that happens in our own lives where sometimes we get nervous about praising individuals too much, right? We get nervous about uh, boasting about people too much because we don't want them to get swollen, we don't want them to be prideful, we don't want them to become arrogant or too confident in themselves. And so sometimes we don't, we don't compliment people, we don't praise them for what we see happening in their life because we're worried about them becoming arrogant. The pendulum can swing so far to the other end where we never tell anybody anything complimentary because we're worried about them being prideful and as a result those people are discouraged and they feel like nobody sees them and they feel downtrodden, they feel ignored, right? There is a middle ground that isn't about praising people and allowing them to become arrogant and also isn't about ignoring what people are doing and allowing them to become discouraged or disheveled, right? The middle ground is to recognize what God is doing in those people. Does that make sense? So he says, I praise God for you, brothers, as I ought to do and as is right, and I boast to others. Thanking God is what we say to him about what he's doing, and boasting to one another about him is what we do horizontally. Does that make sense? We boast about what God is doing in other people. That's the way to thread the needle between puffing people up and ignoring them so entirely that they become discouraged. One of the ways that we put that into practice here in our worship services, and you may not have noticed this or you may have, is that we have sort of uh, over time moved away from the idea of applauding for people on this stage, right? We don't ever go, hey, didn't the band do a great job? Let's give a hoot for the band. Why? Because we don't ever want to take our attention off the glory of God to put it on the band. So don't do that. But what you will hear me sometimes do, and it's very purposeful, I did this a couple of weeks ago when Dr. Daniel Kim spoke. When I introduced Dr. Daniel Kim, what I said, and I said it strategically, was, can we thank God together for what Dr. Kim will bring us today? Right? Can we thank God? You see the difference? It might feel subtle, but it's important. What am I doing? I'm acknowledging that God is using him. I'm acknowledging the way in which God is working through us. Listen, we want to be the kind of people, we want to be the kind of community that doesn't ignore the good things we see God doing, but also doesn't become puffed up. The way to navigate that is to thank God 
and boast about what God is doing in our midst and recognize he gets the glory for that. You see the difference? Paul does that beautifully here. So what is it that he boasts about them? So if, uh, if something good is happening in the church at Thessalonica, so much so that Paul feels proud, that he feels a sense of boasting about what God is doing, it makes sense that we would pay attention to what kind of a church makes the apostle Paul proud, right? What kind of a church would make him proud? And it's probably, just for the sake of the exercise, worth you asking yourself that question. What kind of a church would make you proud, right? I mean, it's relevant because here we are. We're all in a family together worshiping God. What's the kind of church that is a boast-worthy church, biblically speaking? Now, I got shelves and shelves of books in my office that people have given me. There are all kinds of people who've written all kinds of things about what a good church is, right? And sometimes those books talk about the fact that you have to have a certain number of people and how do you get a certain number of people going. Sometimes it has to do with how many buildings you got or how many campuses you've got, how many people are listening to your podcast. Sometimes it has to do with uh, how, many, you know, how many dollars are coming in the budget. Is, is this the criteria for, for a boastworthy church? Is it who has the best rock band? Is it who has the most famous speaker? Is it how many books I've written? Are those the criteria for a boastworthy church? If they are, and I would say in 2020, they tend to be the criteria for a boastworthy church. Biggest, most people, most money, broadest programs, most campuses, most recognizable bumper sticker or whatever. If that's the criteria, let me tell you, the, the church at Thessaloniki has none of it. They're teeny. Nobody knows who their pastor was doesn't seem like it's super important. They don't have a huge budget. They don't have a big building. They don't have any of that. You know what they have? Paul, Paul, Paul mentions three things specifically, three things that he considers to be the criteria for a boastworthy church. Three things that I think we should consider the criteria for boastworthy church as well. The first one, look here in verse four, excuse me, in verse three. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. The first thing he brags about, the first thing he talks to other communities about is that the church at Thessalonica, their faith is growing. Now that's an interesting idea, right? Growing faith. And in fact, he says growing abundantly. The word that's used there is the picture of organic internal growth, like a plant that just kind of goes out of control. I don't know if you have any of those creeping vines in your house that just kind of take off, right? He says your faith is growing. And that might be a little bit of a surprise to some of us because you might think or you may have thought of faith as kind of a static thing, like a binary thing. It's either on or off. You're either a, a man or a woman of faith, or you're an agnostic or whatever. You're, you're somebody who doesn't know, right? You either have faith or don't, and that's the end of it. I will tell you that that is not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures don't teach that faith is a yes or a no question, that it's an on or an off question, that what, faith, what, what the Scriptures teach is that faith is a journey, that it's a trajectory of growth. Think, if nothing else, think about Habakkuk. Think about Habakkuk in our study in the last six weeks. At the beginning of that story, in the beginning of that that book, was he a man of faith? You bet he was. He turned to God and he sought God and he said, God, where are you? I don't see you. I want to see you moving in my generation. I I, want to see you making a difference, right? Is that something that a man of no faith would do? No, he's got faith. But is he a different guy at the end of the book? You bet he is. What happened to him between chapter one and chapter three of Habakkuk? If you were here for that study, what happened is that his faith grew. He had faith, but his faith was not the same. It transformed the kind of person he was. I mean, even in the beginning, in, uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in his greeting there, he commends them earlier. He commends them in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. He says, I always remember before my God and the Lord Jesus Christ, I remember your work produced by faith, 
your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. I'm quoting that out of probably the NIV, might be the King James, because that's where I learned it first, but it's stuck in my gut, right? He says, I remember your work produced by faith and your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope. What's he commending them for in 1 Thessalonians 1? Faith, hope, and love. But not just faith, hope, and love as abstract concepts, right? Not just faith, hope, and love as like something you have internally or don't have. He says what? Faith that produces work. Love that inspires labor. And hope that provokes a steadfastness, a continuance. You see, it's this, it's this love that grows. We talked in our teaching meeting this week about what that growing faith might look like, what it means to have faith that grows. We talked about an increase in our knowledge of God. We certainly saw that in Habakkuk, didn't we? Our increase, the increase of our remembrance of who he is and what he's done and what he will do in the future, and an increase of our experience in life with him, an increase of our trust in him in all circumstances, an increase of our relationship with him. And by that I mean a, a stronger desire to actually spend time in relationship with God. That's a growth in faith. More time spent together, more evidence. Uh, Galatians talks about the fact that the, there, there is a fruit that is produced by a connection with God, the fruit of the Spirit. So we look at that fruit and say, is there more and plentiful fruit to the glory of God and the good of other people being produced in my life? What does this growth in faith look like? Well, it looks like a lot of different things. It's hard to sort of nail down a specific example because what may be evidential of growth in faith in your life may in someone else be evidence of selfishness or pride. Does that make sense? I don't want to get too confusing. But there isn't just like one way that faith looks when it grows. It's that each and every one of us have to say, am I following Jesus? Do I have the same faith I had 10 years ago because I believe that faith is just an on-again, off-again kind of thing or am I on a trajectory of growing? He commends them, he praises them, because God has created in them a growing faith. Can I tell you, church, family, we, we wanna be people whose faith is moving, faith is growing, like an internal vine that sprouts and grows and sends out all kinds of shooters, right? Not only does he commend them for growing faith, go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter one, he says, uh, we always thank God for you because your faith is growing abundantly. Secondly, he says, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. The love of every one of you for one another. What's he saying? The love that each and every one of you have for each and every other person is increasing. And the word there is not an internal word. Remember, the, the growing of their faith is an internal sort of sprouting and blossoming. It's organic. The word here that's used for the increase of their love is the picture of a, of a flood, right, of waters flooding a plain and saturating the ground with water. He says, your love, the love of each and every one of you for each and every other one is saturating your community. It's increasing. I think, you know, even coming out of Valentine's Day, it's easy sometimes to think about love, again, as a static thing, right? You give a card, you hand off a rose, you buy some chocolate, you go out on a fancy dinner, and, and that's proof you love, done. You don't have to do anything till next year, right? None of us wanna be in a relationship like that. None of us wanna be in a relationship where love is a static thing. We all wanna be in a relationship with someone, whether it be a, a marital relationship or friendships. We wanna be in a relationship where the love increases where it grows over time. Jesus himself said that we will be identified by our love. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. Jesus doesn't say, hey, people are going to know you're Christians by your fish bumper stickers. He doesn't say, hey, they're going to know you're Christians by your big buildings or by your huge budgets or by the number of people in your parking garage. He says, they will know you because you have my love on display in your life. How will the world know that we're followers of Jesus? It's not because we you know, make sure they know it. It's because our love, each of our love for every other person is growing. It's not, it's not enough to just love a couple of people or to care about the people that are most convenient to love or the ones that are in the closest proximity to you. He commends them. He says, the thing I boast about is that you have a growing faith. The thing I boast about is that you have increasing love, like floodwaters on a plane, right? Increasing love. Not only that, there's a third thing here. Back to first Thess- excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 1. He says, therefore, in verse four, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. In all your persecutions, you're steadfast and faithful. Now, it's interesting here in 2 Thessalonians, he does not mention hope. But if you look at his greeting in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, he puts those things together. Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope. So here when he talks about endurance and steadfastness, you read between the lines, you understand that for him, endurance is always a byproduct of our hope. So he says, even in the midst of your persecution, even in the midst of the obstacles, even in the midst of the trials that you're facing, I see you being steadfast. I see you being continuous, Right? When we studied Hebrews, and now that's been like, you know, two years ago, one of the major themes of our study of Hebrews was continuing with the faith we had at first, right? That it's not just a one and done thing, but it's a thing that moves on and continues. He says, I'm looking at the church at Thessalonica, and I'm telling the other churches, you wouldn't believe the way their faith is growing, the way their love is increasing every one for every other one. And the way they have remained steadfast and faithful, even in the midst of the trials they're facing. Look. He's about to head into the idea here that, that, that they're going to be facing all kinds of things. He's talking about the fact that there's false teaching. He's talking about the fact that there's persecution. He's talking about the fact that there's idleness among them that needs to be rooted out. And in the midst of that, he says, I see you remaining faithful and steadfast, enduring in the midst of it. And I'll tell you, it's interesting. Suffering, when you're in it, uh, just feels like suffering, Right? It doesn't feel like endurance. It doesn't feel like hope. It doesn't feel like any of that. When you're in the midst of suffering, it just sucks. And if you're here today and you're in the midst of trials or obstacles, we talked at the end of Habakkuk last week about the fact that God makes our feet like the deer so that we can traverse the heights that would be otherwise unclimbable, right, in our lives. He makes it possible for us to climb to new heights. But if you're in the midst of that slog, if you're in the midst of that journey, it probably doesn't feel like a super hopeful thing. Can I tell you, I love the fact that he looks at them and tells them, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your persecution and afflictions that you're facing, I see growth. I see growth. It's incredibly beautiful to be able to look at the lives of other people and say to them, I know you're dealing with difficulty. I know you're in the midst of hardship. I know you're in the midst of pain. But from my vantage point, I can see you being transformed. Now, you have to be careful with it, right? Because there is all kinds of tendency for Christians to be trite or to throw out pithy little statements. The worst thing you can do when you're walking uh, through a a journey with somebody who's grieving or someone who's suffering or afflicted is to go, oh, it's all gonna turn out fine. Why do you feel sorry for yourself, right? That doesn't work, right? It doesn't work to go, hey, you know what? God works all things for good or you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you or, you know, just cheer up, buttercup, whatever, right? That 
those kinds of things, even though theologically, there may be a theological umbrella under which that is true. That God does use those things to refine us and to shape us, that he does make our feet like the feet of the deer so that we can ascend new heights. In the midst of the circumstance, a lot of times people aren't ready to receive that because they're in the midst of the slog. Because they're heavy hearted, because they're sorrowful, because they're grieved. In those moments, all that is required is to come alongside and say, I know you can't see it, I know you can't feel it, but I see growth in you. I see, I see God moving in you. I love the fact that he encourages them and prepares them in some ways for what will come. Even the increase of their love, that, that nowhere is the increase of love more fitting than in the midst of facing persecution, the increase of love more fitting than in the face of false teaching, the increase of love more fitting than, than in trying to rally people away from idleness. So the increase of their love is super appropriate in all of the things that he's gonna speak to them about as we continue on. When he looks at them and says, I'm talking to other people, your peace, your hope, your love is radiating out, right? I thank God for it, and I'm, I'm encouraging the other churches. I'm boasting in your growing faith, in your increasing love, and your steadfastness in the midst of your persecution. And then he goes on. I said there, there are three things that are like a criteria for, uh, for a boastworthy church, but they all sit under one sort of overarching umbrella, and here's what we see in five. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. This is a verse uh, that's been sort of hotly contended over time because people aren't entirely sure, theologians and commentators aren't entirely sure uh, what what particular subject that word this is modifying. So if you have your notebook there in front of you, you might underline the word this. You can put a little question mark there if you want. What's he mean? When he says this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, Is is he talking about the increase of their love? That's evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Is he talking about their growing faith or their steadfastness in the midst of persecution? That's, that's proof of the righteous judgment of God? That doesn't feel like it fits exactly. Some people will say, though, that that's what he's talking about, that, that that has to do with the righteous judgment of God. Other people will look at it and say that that word this is actually uh, talking about the stuff that we're going to study next week, the, the fact that God will settle accounts, that he will in no way let the guilty go unpunished, that's coming at the end of the chapter. I actually think, and and you can take this for what it's worth because I'm just one voice and I get it wrong sometimes, but I think that word this in verse five is pointing to the trials and the afflictions. He says, I see your growing faith and I see your increasing love, each, each one for one another, and I see your steadfastness in the midst of the trials and I want you to understand that that trial, those afflictions, that persecution are evidence, they are proof of the just judgment, the righteous judgment of God. And you go, well, what what exactly does that mean? How are the trials? They aren't a consequence. So what is it? Here's here's what it's saying. When it talks about judgment here, it's not necessarily talking about judgment in a courtroom where the gavel falls, right? It's not talking about pronouncement. What it's talking about is God's discernment, God's wisdom. Why is their faith growing? Why is their love increasing? Why are they remaining steadfast? You know why? Because they're a kingdom-minded church. Because what they care about more than big buildings or money or fame or whatever, what they care about is God's glory. And because of their kingdom focus, it says here you're suffering because of the kingdom, the the kingdom for which you are suffering. Because of their kingdom focus, they're dealing with persecution and affliction. They're dealing with trials and hardships so that their love 
is growing so that their faith is growing so that their steadfastness and hope is remaining. But that difficulty, the persecution and affliction is evidence. It's proof of something. It's proof that God has deemed them worthy both for the kingdom and to be shaped increasingly for the kingdom. Does that make sense? Listen, it isn't our love or our faith or our endurance that makes us kingdom citizens, right? That, it's the atonement of Christ. So not to get too crazy theological on you, but you and I are worthy for the kingdom of God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because he came and he lived the perfect life in the incarnation, he took our sin upon himself, he died in our place and shed his blood, was buried dead, rose again, and extends to each and every one of us by his grace resurrection life. When we believe in that, we are made new. We're, we're fit for the kingdom. But there is an ongoing process by which we are sanctified. What that means is that we are conformed increasingly to the image of Christ. We're increasingly revealing Christ in our lives, in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. What Paul is saying here is, I know you're in the slog. I know you're in the midst of affliction and persecution, but can I tell you one other thing you might have missed? That the very presence of that persecution is evidence or proof that God has deemed you fit for the kingdom. Yeah, I think many of us would probably like something different. I think we'd probably go, man, if I'm following God, if I believe in God, if I trust in Jesus, if my faith is growing and my love is increasing, if I'm being steadfast, then why won't God just take all the difficulty away? Why not take all the pain and all the trials and all the obstacles? Why do we have to turn my feet into the feet of a deer so I can ascend new heights? Just take the mountains away, right? Easy peasy. If I could, if I could offer you that, we'd have a line out the door for trials and persecutions and afflictions to go away. But can I tell you, that is not what he's teaching here. What he's affirming is that trials and obstacles, in certain cases, the persecution and affliction is proof that God is fitting you for the kingdom in an ongoing way and that he has declared you fit for the kingdom first, right? That he's declared you fit for the kingdom and that he is fitting you for the kingdom in an ongoing way. Now listen, not all suffering and affliction is the result of God's righteous judgment. I wanna be clear. Sometimes the, the obstacles, the affliction and persecution you're facing is a result of your own stupid choices, my own stupid choices, right? Sometimes it's because I've been a bozo and so I'm dealing with obstacles in my life because I was dumb. Sometimes I have suffering and affliction in my life because of the stupidity of other people around me. Sometimes I have suff uh, suffering and affliction in my life because I live in a broken and fallen world. One day Jesus will come and redeem the whole thing. But in the meantime, I live here in 2020, and so there's affliction that happens for a variety of reasons. Sometimes my own stupid choices, sometimes the stupid choices of people around me, sometimes just living in a fallen world. But there is the reality that in all of those cases, regardless of where that affliction came from or where it originated, it is all usable by God to fit me for the kingdom. It is all usable by God to fit me for the kingdom. He says to the church at Thessalonica, I thank God for what I see in you. Remember the things I prayed in my first letter? I prayed that your faith would grow, that your love would increase, that you would remain steadfast. And let me tell you, I see it. I see it. Your faith is growing. Your love is increasing. You're, you are remaining steadfast in the midst of persecution. And that is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that he has deemed you fit to be shaped for the kingdom. I, I, my friends uh, Brent and Kristen tell a funny story about one spring when um, Kristen planted a bunch of flowers in the front yard in front of their house. She had all these flower beds. And she planted these flowers and they just took off. You know how that happens sometimes? Like the flowers just flourished. They grew. They looked absolutely stunning and beautiful. And they were all in their family kind of proud of their flower beds. And then one day uh, Brent and Kristen came home from the grocery store or something and all their flowers had been ripped out. 
And they're like, what happened to our flowers? They walk in the door, and all their flowers are sitting on the kitchen counter, and they've all been cleaned. There's no dirt on them anywhere. And they, they kind of panic. They don't know what's going on. Like, what kind of a weird serial crime is this, right? And uh, they find their daughter, Jillian, who was just a little thing at the time, and they say, what happened to the flowers? And she goes, oh, I pulled them out of all that yucky dirt, and I brought them in here so we could appreciate them more. She said, the flowers are so beautiful, but, but you, you, know, you don't want to have to look at dirt, so I cleaned them all up, Right? I think sometimes we want to do that in our own life. And what we fail to recognize is that suffering and affliction and difficulty is the soil in which faith grows. It's the soil in which love increases. It's the soil in which hope and endurance flourish. As much as we'd want to pull ourselves out of that soil and wash it off so everything looks rosy and pretty and lovely, there is no growth once you've pulled the flowers out of the dirt. They have to stay in the dirt in order to produce. He looks at them here and he says, I see you and I'm proud of you. Church, what if the criteria for a boastworthy church is not how big we are or how small we are? It's not how much money we give or how much money we give away. It's not how many people sit in the seats. It's not how many buildings we have or whatever else. What if the criteria for a boastworthy church in the eyes of God is a people of God collectively growing in faith, increasing in love, steadfast and resolute in the midst of obstacles that God is using because in his righteous judgment he has deemed us fit for the kingdom. That's just the greeting. That's just the way he starts the letter. He says, I see you, and I'm proud of what God is doing in you. Can I say that as a shepherd in this community, I see you, and I'm proud of what God's doing in us, but we got a long way to go still. So let's not try and pull ourselves out of the dirt. Let's encourage each other in the midst of it. God has deemed you fit for the kingdom. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us an understanding, a comprehension, an absolute trust in the fact that you have deemed us worthy, that those of us who are followers of you, those of us who are in God, in Christ Jesus, as you say about the church at Thessalonica in the the first verse, that those of us who are in you have been deemed by you to be fit for the kingdom and that you are shaping us, that you are growing us. And we don't have to pull ourselves out of the dirt, but that we should be intent on not remaining static in our faith and our love and our hope, but that those things will be growing and advancing and increasing like waters that flood the plain and saturate the earth. The people in this community would know we are yours because we are growing in our faith, hope, and love. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.